Welcome to the weekly briefing from Capital Economics. This special episode is an audio recording of a drop-in, which is one of our online client briefings, and it's all about zero COVID and what it means for China and the world economy. It was recorded at three o'clock London time on Tuesday, 29th of November, and was led by Group Chief Economist Jennifer McKeown, who was speaking to Mark Williams from our Asia team, Ed Gardner from our commodities team, and Jonas Goldsman from Markets. It starts with Mark explaining China's current COVID situation and the government's policy stance around that. Look, maybe, maybe we should start on the politics and the, and the protests that's been that are leading the news, at least outside China, over the past couple of days. It looks like that has quietened down. I think there are potentially two reasons for that. One is that it's no longer the weekend, so people aren't out so much. But the second important reason is that the authorities have try to make sure that protests don't reappear. So yeah, there's been a heavy police presence in areas where protests previously were held. Some of them have been blocked off. And so in the short term, it does feel like they've sort of dampened things down. But I don't think we can assume that this is the end of it. We could very much, very easily see further protests popping up. There's been a lot of action on social media in China of people posting things that are clearly kind of uh, elliptically critical of, of the leadership and of the uh, Cody policy. So it's not over yet. Clearly what it has done is, is exposed. There's a really widespread dissatisfaction, anger really, with a lot of the zero COVID policies. So even if we don't see any more protests, it does feel like something has changed and that the, kind of the leadership has to respond on that. So what does this mean for, for the Chinese economy? How, how What are the impacts likely to be? Yeah, so I guess it depends on what happens. We've had a lot of questions in advance of this, but also over the past two or three weeks, kind of the most common question from from clients that I've had is is about zero COVID and kind of when does it end? And I think our view is a little bit different from what I take to be the consensus, at least from talking to clients about this. There seems to be a kind of a widespread view out there that, that it could end relatively soon, like in the next few months. It's a possibility, but I think the chances of that are are lower than than generally thought. The reason for that is that China is kind of in no place right now to move away from a zero COVID policy towards a living with COVID policy because the vaccination rate of the elderly is still extremely low and the healthcare capacity is also very weak. I mean, this is one of these things that seems a bit counterintuitive. China has been investing 40% of its GDP for decades and yet it has relatively few hospital bed intensive care units and things like this. So it's not in a great place in terms of healthcare capacity and vaccination rates. So the most recent data we have show that a quarter of over 80s have not had a single jab yet. So they are they are really, really vulnerable. Now, there has been movement today on that. So the National Health Committee put out a statement earlier to all branches of the government saying that there needs to be a push to get the older people vaccinated. There's going to be a propaganda campaign and they've created an all-society push to raise the vaccination rate of the elderly. They've also reduced the time that is needed after the second dose before the third booster dose. So that could speed up the rate at which vaccinations have rolled out. But, you know, they're starting from a really low position. So in terms of the booster dose, which really everybody needs to get if if they're vulnerable, 60% 60% of them have not yet had a booster. So it feels to me that even if they succeed, it's going to be quite some time before they get the vaccination rate up to a level where they would feel comfortable that they could actually relax zero COVID. If everything goes right, maybe that's in the middle of next year. But there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy amongst the old. And right now, the only sort of measures that have been taken to encourage them are, are, are propaganda, kind of public health campaigns. There's no sort of, not, there's no vaccine mandate. There's, they're not offering big cash handouts to people to get to get jabbed. 
So our expectation remains that the most likely time for any opening up is actually not next year, but the year after. So these so, low vaccination rates are largely about demand rather than supply then, Mark. It's not the case that there's a restricted supply, just that there's hesitancy among the elderly in particular for yeah, some reason. There's hesitancy among the elderly. And one reason for that, which is overlooked, I think, is that it's simply there's no real need to get vaccinated if you're if you're an elderly Chinese person. So across the past, what, nearly three years now of the, of the pandemic, the official figures show that there have been 1.5 million infections across China. Now, those numbers are probably underplaying a little bit, but not massively and 1.5 million people is 0.1 percent of china's population so hardly anyone has had covid hardly anyone even knows someone who has had COVID. so there's really not been a great reason to get vaccinated and, and even now you know the, the case numbers hitting record highs every day at the moment but the fact is that we're talking 30,000, 40,000 cases across a country of 1.4 billion people so there's hardly any covid it needs you know more needs to be done to encourage the old people to get vaccinated and i think that that's going to say longer than is generally anticipated it seems to me that a lot of people investors in particular are really eager for this kind of good news to happen that there's going to be opening up and they're sort of seizing onto every every kind of morsel of, of good news on that front but I, I think it's going to be a longer process so before we go into the economic effects a bit more do you do you have any thoughts on what what this means for for xi and for xi's influence is there a lot of reputational damage at the moment do, do, do you think and there's a question about whether the narrative is changing a bit regarding zero covid from chinese authorities yeah i think the narrative is changing a little bit so again this is like today that the national health commission came out with its statement there's some, been some stuff in 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 the state media as well this week emphasizing that you can get covid and it's not that bad necessarily if you're if you're vaccinated and that's the sort of thing that you know they obviously you would have thought would have been being done a while ago but it, it is starting to happen now this feel like it's a shift but really early days in terms of xi jinping's position nobody really understands what's going on at the leadership that the top level of the of the Communist Party. I don't think anyone can speak with any certainty about any of any of that. There's no signs of any splits in the ranks at all. There's been no dissent from any senior figures. So it, I don't think there's any evidence that that there is sort of any 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 pushback internally against Xi Jinping. But we wouldn't necessarily know. What is true, as you say, is that this is policy that he has very much made his own and claimed its successes are his successes. So now that it is seen to be failing and a source of great unhappiness and discontentment, then that does definitely reflect badly on Xi Jinping. Okay, right. But restrictions are staying in place for, for quite some time, possibly even in intensified. What does that mean for Chinese economic activity? So I think I think there's three scenarios to think about, which very briefly, the, the kind of the everything goes right scenario is that they ramp up vaccination of the old old people, they get it in some more hospital capacity, and then around the middle of next year, they can seriously think about reopening. Everything has to go right for that to happen. That's the that seems to me to be what what people are expecting in general. What we think is more likely is that we continue the you know, vaccination rises but too slowly, and that means that we kind of have more of the same. We had the Shanghai lockdown in April. We've got Guangzhou, Chongqing having outbreaks at the moment. There's going to be major cities being locked down every few months for the time being. So that's that's what we expect. Right now, in fact, on our own in-house mobility tracker, things are as bad nationwide as they were at the, at the, at the worst point in April. So as a, you know, the economy right now is contracting. So it's more kind of up and down, up and down for the next few quarters, I think is the most likely scenario. So, so pretty weak. And there's a downside scenario to that, which is not, you know, it, it, it's, it's a pretty plausible one, I think, right now, which is that actually, rather than the government managing an exit from zero COVID, they just lose control. 
So right now, COVID is present in about 120-odd of the nearly 300 city-level areas that China is divided. So approaching half of the country in that sense, half of the, more than half of the country in terms of economic output right now is having a, a COVID outbreak. That's far higher than ever before. So I think although the numbers, the aggregate numbers of infections are still really low at the moment, there is definitely a risk that the zero COVID just fails at this point. It spreads rapidly everywhere. If that were to happen, I think that the response from the authorities would be to, to go back to the playbook from January, February 2020 and lock everywhere. And in, that, in those circumstances, you know, the economic impact would be, would be much, much greater. Okay, we've had several questions about supply from from China and, well, in particular, is zero COVID inflationary globally? And what we've seen so far is that because zero COVID, the the restrictions are focused largely on services activity and on consumer activity rather than on outputs and exports and factories. And indeed, factories, great efforts have been made to keep them them running and to keep exports going. The implications for the world have so far been, been relatively modest. Of course, China's a huge economy it just weighs arithmetically on, on the rest of the world that it's it's performing poorly and the demand for exports from some economies is it's relatively fragile. But in terms of the supply d- disruption, it's been relatively minimal. And indeed, container throughput from China's major ports has, has just continued to trend upwards. So, so, so far, limited supply implications, but that could, of course, get a lot worse, as we saw during the initial full nationwide lockdown in early 2020. So if that happens again, then we'll be thinking a lot more about serious supply restrictions and inflationary consequences for the world. But at, at the moment, we're not really seeing much of that. So, so going forwards, I'm, I'm not sure that zero COVID is a major inflationary pressure. And indeed, I think that t- to the extent that China's demand for commodities is, is limited by zero COVID policy and for restrictions that happen there, then it could be a disinflationary pressure. But Ed, I'm sure you've got more to add on, on that. What's, what's your view on the implication for major commodities? Yeah, thanks, Jenny. So we've been pessimistic about China's oil demand growth next year for some time because we forecast that China's economic growth will be weak next year and we don't expect a quick lifting of the zero COVID policy. So the latest outbreak in associated mobility restrictions means that what small increase in demand we expected next year from China now looks increasingly tenuous. In the near term, we published a note last Friday in which we argue that Chinese oil demand could drop by 1 million barrels per day in December from November, or nearly 10% of demand, based on its past experiences of COVID outbreaks and where we are today, which is already subdued oil demand. In an all else equal world, that could be consistent with a 5 to $10 decrease in the price of a barrel of crude oil. And perhaps we've already seen some of that take place. But crucially, with OPEC Plus due to meet on the 4th of December, and with new EU and G7 risk sanctions on Russian oil exports looming the following day, there are clear supply-side risks on the horizon, which could push the price higher. So we aren't lowering our end 2022 price forecast just yet. Okay, thanks, Ed. Just to move over to financial markets now and to bring you in, um, Jonas, we've had a, a, a few different questions, but, but perhaps let's start with the equity markets. They seem to have, have recovered a bit. What, what, does that, what does that reflect? Does it seem reasonable? And what do we think the prospects are for Chinese equities? Yeah, thank you, Jenny. I think equity markets have sort of taken a, a half-class full 
approach to the situation. The Hang Seng, for example, is up 5% just today, almost 20% on a month ago. So there's definitely, you know, the investors are looking at the at the bright side of this and hoping for an end to zero COVID in, in the near future. So I guess the subscribing to that consensus view, that upside scenario that, that marks it out, I think that's fair to say. And that obviously is not something we think is, is justified if, if we're right, that it's continue and, and COVID zero isn't going anywhere. Eventually that will you know, filter through and, and, and that probably will put renewed downward pressure on the Chinese stock market. That said, Chinese equities have been through a pretty rough small year and a half now. A number of factors have contributed to that, not just zero COVID. But the MSC China, MSCI China index, for example, is down more than 50% as of the start of October before that rebound since the start of 2021. And what's happened over that period is that a lot of that has been a shift in, in valuation. So price earnings ratios were really high at the start of 2021, about as high as, as they've ever been. And now they've fallen you know, successively and, and now are about as low as they've ever been, both relative to their own history, but also relative to other major markets, and particularly the US, where valuations are still very high. So I, I think I can, I can sort of see where investors are coming from here. You know, the, the Chinese market looks, in some sense, cheap or undervalued relative to, to the past, relative to peers. So if there is somewhere do you want to, you know, if there is a turnaround in zero COVID that, that does have the scope for, for a significant rebound. Now, like I said, we don't think that's justified and based on, on, on zero code outlook. And also, if you think about other you know, headwinds that we foresee for, for equity markets, you know, we're forecasting a global recession next year. That's not good for equities anywhere. Yeah, there's also, alongside this optimism about zero COVID, there's also been a lot of hopes that you know, central banks are going to take their foot off the brake, as it were, or at least you know, stop, stop hiking rates quite as aggressively. And I think, you know, if you listen to what some Fed officials have been saying recently, we've got Powell coming up tomorrow as well, I think that hope may also be a little bit misplaced or at least premature. So I think the, the you know, at, at risk of, of sounding like the Grinch that wants to stop the, the Santa rally that everyone wants to see, you know, I think there's a bit, bit, bit too much optimism going around both in terms of, of zero COVID and, and more broadly. I see we've had another question on the probability of China importing primarily vaccines. So on, the, on that part of it, I think it's pretty low. That you know the the, the leadership in China has set out it's it wants to do it with homegrown vaccines, and there are now mRNA vaccines. In, as I understand, at a fairly late stage of, of trials, Chinese-made vaccines. So there could be a, a local one to roll out fairly soon. Having said that, I I think that the focus on the efficacy of China's vaccines is is almost entirely misplaced. There's this, there's this very widespread view that the problem for China is that its vaccines aren't effective, and that's why they can't open up. And but that's the evidence suggests that just simply isn't the case. So, so um, they are less effective than the mRNA vaccines, but they are still pretty effective at, at preventing severe illness. So the evidence from the outbreak in Hong Kong suggested that three doses of one of the Chinese vaccines gave you the equivalent protection to two doses of an mRNA jab. So you can get good protection, you'd need to get it into people's arms, though. And that's that's been the problem, the failure to actually get people vaccinated. It's not the thing that they've been vaccinated with. It's a problem. One bit of potential good news recently, they've just started to approve in different parts of China a nasal vaccine, which there are some suggestions that, that might help for people who don't like having needles. And today's notice from the uh, National Health Commission uh, said that that could be used, I think, as a booster rather than as a first shot, but uh, maybe that will kind of move the needle. But yeah, I think the key point is it's not about the quality of the vaccine. It's the fact that they just haven't been vaccinating people. 
And related to that, Mark, why won't Chinese authorities make vaccinations mandatory? <laughs> that that is the the biggest puzzle, I sense, in a sense of of, of all of this. It's um. It sort of it shines a light on some elements of the Chinese autocracy that it's a it doesn't have as much power as I think a lot of people would think over people's day to day lives. They're kind of quite nervous in many ways about forcing certain things on on the population. So, for example, a while ago, Beijing, the city of Beijing, implemented a a sort of a, a, a vaccination passport. So, in order to go into public spaces, you needed to your your health app on your phone app to show that you've been vaccinated. They were forced to roll that back a day later after announcing it because there was such a public outcry and they really didn't want to upset people. So the the government is more concerned about public opinion than you you might think. But having said that, they've got themselves into such a difficult position because of the failure to vaccinate that you would think that they could use carrots and sticks to try and boost the vaccination rate. Ed, there's a question on on gas and coal. You've told us about implications for oil prices, but what, what about gas and coal? Yeah, so the implications for China's natural gas and coal demand are slightly different to its to the implications for its oil demand. Obviously, oil is largely used for transportation purposes. And what matters most over the coming weeks and months for China's gas and coal demand will be the way which ongoing restrictions affect China's economy. So looking at past, looking at past episodes of of restrictions, like in the very early days of the pandemic and the Omicron-related wave of this year, we th- we saw that industry was most affected in in that first initial wave, but less so in the in the wave this year. And um, you you could see how China's coal demand was affected in in that sense in January of, of 2020 and April of 2022, whereas China's gas demand was also influenced by the time of the of the outbreaks. So back in January 2020, it was obviously winter in the Northern Hemisphere. So with more people confined at home, what we actually saw was less of a hit to China's gas demand, um, presumably because there was more residential heating-related demand, which took, a, took away some of the impacts from the sort of industrial side of things. Whereas in April of 2022, there was less heating related demand and, and therefore we saw a bigger hit in year on year terms to China's gas demand. So in terms of where we go from here, I think um, China's gas and coal demand will very much depend on whether industry is affected by the ongoing outbreak. And in terms of the gas demand, um, you know, is if we have a cold spell, we could we could really see a spike in China's gas demand with more people confined at home. So, plenty of things to watch there. Yes, absolutely. I think worth noting that overall, so far as commodities are, are concerned, our, our central forecasts in, imply that energy and food effects are going to knock about three percentage points off um, annual inflation in the developed economies over the next six months or so. So these are potentially very big moves as, as things stand and any deviations from those forecasts could could really change things, but a lot of un- uncertainty, unfortunately, as, as that's explaining. The Another question for you, Jonas, on, on financial markets and the renminbi in, in particular. This, this client would like to know what the implications of zero COVID are for, for the currency, both onshore and offshore. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think we've seen this year, well, the past couple of years, really, that, that we know that maybe is a managed currency, the, the PBOC, the authorities keep a pretty close eye on it and prevent it from going too far one way or the other. It's sort of limiting volatility and, and in particular, disorderly 
moves to the downside. So we've seen them keep a pretty tight leash on it. I think this year there have been a couple of periods in which the RMB has weakened quite substantially against the dollar, but overall they've kept it under control and, and the you know we're trading around seven twenty now. So it's a almost a ten percent fall on the year. That's quite a lot for the RMB, but far less than you know, other major currencies. If you think about the euro, particularly, so I think that they probably feel like. Yeah, that, that, that's been a, a bit of a release valve, but at the same time, keeping it from falling too much and, and triggering the sort of outflows that we've seen uh, in, in periods in the past and during the trade war and then back in fifteen sixteen. And I think that overall pattern will continue, if anything, continuing zero COVID or, or you know other problems they may face. There's a question coming up on, on the property sector yeah, as well, which I think is, is interesting that that is going to to push, the, I think, the PBOC towards keeping the RMB under more control. So I don't think we're going to see it weaken much more against the dollar. I think you know it might go through 730, but not not an awful long way. You know, another reason of that is, of course, the other side of the equation is, is that interest rate differentials have moved a long way in favor of the dollar against the RMB this year. That's a big part of what's put down the pressure on, on the RMB and other currencies against the dollar. And we think that move, the shift in rate differentials is coming to an end maybe not quite yet but we're getting closer as long-term rates and long-term yields in the u.s probably peaked and then the fed is getting closer to to ending its tightening cycle so in that sense you know the chinese a bit like other central banks in the region are paying for time at this point and, and hoping that hoping that that that, that downward pressure goes away before too long and i, and I think you know sometime next year we'll, we'll probably get there and they'll get there well and in the meantime they have the tools available to to keep the the remember from weakening very much you're right to point out the property sector there, Jonas. We've got several questions here, Mark, about the property sector, which, of course, is the, the other cloud on the horizon, aside from zero COVID in China. The questions relate largely to whether recent measures will boost construction activity, whether there are prospects for improvement in, in the property sector. Yeah, and there are other, other similar questions, also a related question on, on what it will mean for commodities demand. But if, if you start, Mark, with the, the, the property yeah. sector so itself. It's, yeah, I mean, it has been very interesting with all of the zero going on sort of simultaneously there have been a number of policy announcements over the past couple of weeks of, of support for the property sector they broadly fall into two buckets of things so one is financing bbac in particular has, has opened up financing to complete the construction of stalled projects and that is really important to boost confidence amongst home buyers that if they buy a property they will get the property that they, they bought so it's really crucial that 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 happens so far, the amounts that they've introduced are far, far too small to clear the the, the, the total number of store projects, but it's a definitely a, a step in the right um, direction. The other thing that they've been doing is for the better, the healthier developers, the ones with better balance sheets, they ha- are starting to ease some of the restrictions on financing, so they're making it easier for them to tap the bond market, the equity market, and the major state banks have opened up credit lines with the the, the, the healthiest developers. So it's kind of interesting. It's not the ones that are about to fall over and, 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 and declare bankruptcy that are giving them help. It's the healthy ones. So what this is about is consolidation in the sector. They're not, they're accepting that a lot of these companies are going to go under. They want to consolidate, particularly a lot of these healthier firms, bigger firms, estate firms as well. So we're going to emerge from this with a much more state-led property sector. Will this lead to um, a pickup in construction activity? A little bit. If they get these stalled projects moving, that will that will help. But you're not going to get a really big pickup in new project starts until sales have turned around. So I think that's the thing to watch. Look at what's happening to sales in past downturns. It's taken sort of 
nine months broadly from a turnaround in sales for that to be reflected in a turnaround in construction. Right now, sales are still falling. So we're, you know, at the best, we're talking second half of next year before we're likely to see um, construction turnaround. Could be, could be longer than that. Okay. Well, we've, we've used half an hour now, so I, I think we should probably wrap up. Thank you so much for all your questions. We, we've had a, a lot and there are a few remaining, which we'll endeavour to reply to by email. But, but for now, Mark, do you think you could wrap up for us on what the, what the key points have been? So I think from my perspective, in terms of where I feel like some of the messages are wrong that I'm hearing in the market, I think in particular that the too high a, um, a probability has been placed on on opening up happening quite soon. I think that for that to happen, everything needs to go right. If it doesn't, then we're looking more like 2024 before zero COVID really comes to an end. That means that the next year or so is going to be, in a best case scenario, pretty weak with the current lockdowns. And there's a significant downside risk to that, that that COVID just gets out of control and and there needs to be a, a national lockdown. The former scenario is probably not too bad for the rest of the world. I don't think we're going to see major supply chain disruption um, and there could be gains from the disinflationary impact through commodity markets. The latter scenario is the one to really worry about because if we see widespread lockdowns across Chinese industry, then that would feed through to, to global supply chains. Financial markets, as Jones was saying, there's so much bad news. They're already so beaten down that we're not actually as, as pessimistic as you might think about the outlook for equities in particular. So I, I don't know if that's a relative good news story, but yeah, the macro outlook I think is, is dreadful at the moment. The market's outlook is perhaps not quite so poor.